Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you are faithful, and it rests on your unchanging nature, that as we consider the gospel, as we consider the work of Christ, we know that you will not go back on your promises. You will not go back on your word, because you are the faithful, unchanging God, and you have given us in your word a revelation of yourself. You have revealed yourself to us also in Christ Jesus. So as we look to your word and we learn about Christ and we learn about your will, may we be faithful and humble to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Luke chapter 9 this morning. We've made it to the transfiguration of Christ. A skilled comedian will master what is sometimes called a callback. And a callback is when a comedian tells a joke in the beginning of his set that is a little bit funny, it'll get a little bit of a laugh from the crowd, but somehow through the skill of the comedian, he finds a way near the end of his act to sort of recall this joke. Maybe he recalls even the whole punchline, and usually that second joke hits a lot harder because you realize he set you up from the beginning. If you only had the end If you only had the second joke, it might be sort of funny, but when you see the bigger picture, when you know that this was a setup, it hits harder with the force with which the comedian intended it. Now, the transfiguration is not comedy, but it has its fair share of callbacks. It's recalling Old Testament narrative as we look, and as honorable as Moses was, he was simply a picture He was simply a setup for the person and work of Jesus Christ. As powerful and authoritative as Elijah was, he is the precursor, a precursor, to the true prophet of the Lord, Jesus Christ himself. He is the one that can truly restore all things. In fact, our text this morning is filled with allusions and and lookbacks to the Old Testament. And if you're looking for a reason, why should I persevere in Bible reading every day? Why, why should I go through the Pentateuch when it gets hard and it's difficult for me to read through that? Well, as you read your Bible regularly and as you begin to take these things into your mind and into your heart, as you read and reread, maybe you begin to pick up on some of these callbacks that exist in the Gospels. There's people and there's places and there's festivities and there's sacrifices that are constantly being alluded to from the Old Testament. And the more we read, the more we study, the more we might be able to, by God's grace, as the Holy Spirit teaches us His Word, be able to identify some of these things, some of these callbacks. So let's dive into the text this morning and see see what we're talking about here. There's only two points this morning. I'll give them to you up front, then we'll dive into them one at a time. The glory of Christ revealed in verses 28 through 33 and the person of Christ announced in verses 34 through 46. Let's look at that first point, the the glory of Christ revealed. Look there in verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. 
And behold, two men were talking with them, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. So the text begins by locating this transfiguration, this event, with what preceded it. Luke says it was about eight days after these sayings that the transfiguration of Christ took place. Now normally we wouldn't stop and sort of think about these eight days, but Matthew and Mark both say it was six days, and sometimes it's good for us to call attention to these differences that people might point to and say these are contradictions, so every once in a while we like to pause and demonstrate that there's good answers. There's good reasons for these. These are not discrepancies, they're not contradictions. So what gives here? Was it six days or was it eight days? And this, the answer is fairly simple. It depends on how you count your days. First off, Luke says it was about eight days, so he's giving an approximation. But more importantly, he seems to be including the day that the sayings happened and the day that they went up on the mountain to give, uh, give him his number of eight days. Where Matthew and Mark, they must have just picked the, the intervening days between the saying and the transfiguration. And so this happens all the time, right? If you have small children, they've asked you probably in the last few days, how many days till Christmas? And you say it's 35 days till Christmas. And what's their next question? Is that counting today? And that's how we get our supposed discrepancy, because sometimes we count the day and sometimes we don't. So it's been about a week, six, seven, eight days, depending on how you count it. Remember... The sayings, then, that Luke is referring to. It's been eight days since these sayings. Well, what sayings? The sayings we've looked at over the last couple weeks, it began when Peter confessed accurately, accurately that Jesus is the Christ of God. And we'll see another allusion to that, but he is the Davidic king who will rule on the throne of David forever. He is the Son of God, the Redeemer of God's people. And so when Peter accurately identifies Jesus as the Christ of God, although there's still a lot that needs to be filled in there, it's shocking then when Jesus says that he must be rejected, he must suffer, and he must die prior to being raised on the third day. And then Jesus goes straight in, now if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and come after me. These are the sayings that Luke is talking about. And so last week we ended the, the message looking at verse 27 there. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And we concluded that it's best to understand verse 27 as a reference to this moment that we're looking at this morning, this transfiguration of 
Christ. There are some standing here who will get a glimpse into the kingdom of God. And then he takes some of them up the mountain and he reveals his glory to them. And when Peter related this, it was a preview of the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he takes up his his inner ring of disciples, Peter and James and John, and he goes up to the mountain to pray. We aren't told specifically which mountain this is, but in the Bible, going up the mountain is often a moment where one will encounter God. One might even receive revelation from God. Like those of you who come up from rapids. No, I'm just kidding. Abraham and Isaac come to mind as they went up Mount Horeb there. Moses comes to mind, or actually Elijah was on Mount Horeb, and he interacts with the Lord. Moses goes up the mountain and interacts with the Lord. Abraham went up to sacrifice his son there, and the Lord provided the sacrifice. And so they're going up the mountain, and, and, and if, we, if we know our biblical theology, we're, we're wondering, is this significant? Is there going to be a, a significant moment here We've also seen that Luke likes to highlight that Jesus prays before big moments, big transitions in his ministry. So we find Jesus here praying. And if we're we're reading the Gospel of Luke and we've picked up on that and we're thinking, oh, I wonder if something big is about to happen. I wonder if something significant. I wonder what comes next. There's a sense of anticipation. And it doesn't disappoint, right? As Jesus is praying... The text says his face was altered, his appearance changes, and his clothes become a dazzling white. Now what we need to to know is that in in Scripture, the glory of the Lord is often associated with a radiant, even blinding light. You think of Saul on his way to persecute the church of God on the, on the way to Damascus and he encounters the Lord Jesus Christ and he's blinded by the light. In the eternal state, at the end of the book of Revelation, it says there is no need for a sun there because the glory of God is the light and it puts out the darkness. So here we have Jesus' dazzling light indicating his glory Indicating that his his glory is demonstrating that he is completely pure, he is completely good, and this is demonstrated in this dazzling, blinding appearance. And so what we get in this uh, section here is a little glimpse behind the veil. We get a little glimpse behind the curtain. Remember that Jesus has humbled himself in coming to earth. He has taken on flesh, and in that he has taken on humanity, the fullness of humanity, and he has taken on the form of a servant. And to those who didn't have eyes to see, Jesus looked like a normal man. He he lived as a normal man. He slept and he ate and he did the things that humans do. And so his glory was veiled in a sense, although he was demonstrating it through his works and through his teaching. But what we see here is that the veil removed momentarily, and what is revealed is the shining glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are reminded of the story in Exodus of Moses, who who saw the glory of the Lord. 
He asked the Lord, Lord, please show me your glory. And the Lord said, you cannot look upon my face and live, so I'll set you in the cleft of this rock, and as I pass by, I will cover your face, and then you can look at my back. That's all you can see if you hope to live. And so the Lord passes by, Moses sees the glory of the Lord, and when he receives the law, and as he comes down the mountain, his face is glowing such that he has to cover his face with a veil. Like Moses, Jesus' face shines, but unlike Moses, Jesus isn't reflecting glory, he is emanating his own glory. Moses' face glowing was a reflection of the glory of the Lord. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is a brilliance, a glory, a splendor, a majesty that radiates from Jesus because he is the Son of God. It's not just a reflection like Moses Speaking of Moses, he shows up at, a, at the party, and, and the great prophet Elijah is with him. You know, one of the reasons this matters is, as you think about the context of Luke, one of the reasons, not, I don't think the main reason, but one of the reasons this is important is because it refutes the wrong guesses that the crowd gave earlier when Jesus said, who does the crowd say that I am? Well, Jesus, some say you're John the Baptist. Well, that was easily refuted. Some say you're Elijah. Well, here Jesus is with Elijah. And some say you're one of the great prophets come back from the dead. Well, here he is standing with Moses, who would top the list there. And so their presence highlights that Jesus is distinct from these men. But I think there's something more going on in the text. There's another reason that Moses and Elijah specifically show up here. I think, first, Moses draws our attention back to God's work in the Exodus. God called Moses to confront Pharaoh, who would have been the most powerful man in the world at the time, the most powerful ruler. And it was Moses whom God used to bring Israel out from underneath the bondage and slavery of Egypt through the Red Sea, overthrowing the powerful Egyptians, freeing Israel from slavery. It's through God's power that Moses led them out of bondage. So Moses, the presence of Moses, points us back to the Exodus. Well, then why is Elijah there? What's Elijah's deal? Well, often Elijah is associated with the coming, the return of Christ. In Malachi 4, 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of destruction. The return of Elijah was viewed as a time in which he will restore justice. And really, as we walk through Malachi, we saw true worship would return to Israel. There was this anticipation that when Elijah comes, that, that, that things will be restored. He will restore all 
things at the great and awesome day of the Lord. Not that Elijah would be the one doing it, but he would precede this day. So we might say that Moses points us back to the work of the Lord in redeeming his people from slavery, while Elijah points us forward to the coming of Christ and to the glory that will be revealed there when he establishes his rule on earth and he judges the righteous and the wicked. Now this is um, consistent with Jesus' statement there in verse 27, that there are some here who will see the kingdom of God. Elijah reminds us that this, this is about the coming of the glory of Christ at the, coming of the second coming of Christ. That's fulfilled here, verse 27, in the transfiguration. The glory revealed on the mountain is a preview of the glory of Christ that will be revealed at the end. This is a glimpse into the power and the glory of his coming, of which these three disciples, Peter says, we were eyewitnesses to this glory. So these two men, pointing us backwards and pointing us forward, they have a sort of glorious appearance. Luke doesn't seem to indicate that they're as glorious as Christ. We'll see that really clear in a minute. They're not matching the shining splendor of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they are found there speaking of Christ's departure. Now that is the Greek word exodon or exodus, which can simply mean death. It can simply mean departure. It's oftentimes used of departure from the land of the living. But in context here, as, close, as a close connection with Moses, I think we're meant to see a sort of play on words here. They're speaking of Jesus' exodus, his death, which will result in the freeing of his people. That will result in the slavery of sin being overthrown. It's looking forward to the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ that is soon to follow. It's looking forward to the work of Christ. And what we're learning then in the book of Luke, or the gospel of Luke, is that Jesus' suffering, if they're talking about his departure in terms of his death, and in that death he accomplishes salvation for sinners, what we're learning about in the gospel of Luke is that Jesus' suffering and his glory are not at odds with one another, they go hand in hand. Luke spent all these chapters demonstrating the authority and the power of Jesus, the person of Jesus. The Son of Man will judge the world. He is the King of Psalm 2 that will rule the nations, and yet Jesus must suffer and die. And so we see Luke, again, just weaving these themes together like he did in the previous couple paragraphs there. Jesus is manifesting his glory, his shining splendor and majesty are on display, yet as he speaks with two of the most significant Old Testament figures, they're speaking about his death. Jesus' glory and his death are not contradictions to one another. In fact, for Christ, the path of suffering is the means by which God will glorify Jesus in all the world. The path to suffering is the means by which God will glorify Jesus in all the world. It is the death of Christ 
in which he took our place on the cross. He bore our guilt in his body, taking our punishment for sin that Jesus is most glorified. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, just prior to his arrest and his crucifixion, Jesus prayed this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. In that hour, the hour of Jesus' betrayal, the hour of Jesus' rejection, the hour of Jesus' crucifixion, this is the hour that the Son will be glorified unto the glory of the Father. So, trying to keep that context in mind, we can also make more sense of Jesus' call for his followers to deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow him. The path of following Christ then involves suffering. The suffering of denying the flesh, the suffering of rejection and persecution from this world, and for many believers around the world, the, the suffering of martyrdom, being killed for the faith. So we see that the goal of the Christian life then is not to avoid all suffering. We don't want to heap unnecessary suffering on ourselves. We're not, we're not looking at asceticism here, that I'm going to hurt myself in order to sanctify myself. It's not, it's not that. But it's that we're willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. We're willing to endure the scorn and persecution of the world. So a question that I think is worth its time for us to consider this morning is, are we trying to avoid suffering despite God's call to suffer in faithfully following Christ? Are we willing to suffer even the denial of the flesh, the denial of ourselves? Are we willing to endure rejection and persecution and hardship if it means faithfully obeying Christ. These things, this suffering, is the precursor to our eternal life with God. It's not the, it's not the basis, it's not how we earn eternal life, this is, but it is the path. This is the path to enjoying God forever. As Jesus' path to glory went through suffering, so our path to being with God forever in glory goes through suffering. And this suffering, this suffering for Christ, is not an afterthought. It's not, it's not God trying to frantically figure out how to work things. Oh no, I've sent the Son to the world and they don't like Him. What do I do? I need to figure out a plan here. It's, it's not that. Look at the second half of verse 32 there. But when they... Oh, sorry, I, I think I picked the wrong verse. Verse 31 who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. That word accomplish, it's oftentimes translated fulfilled. He's going to accomplish that which he was sent to do. It was necessary for Christ to be lifted up on the cross to fulfill the purpose for which he came. There was no other way 
There was no other way to reconcile us to God. There was no other way to achieve the forgiveness of sins. And there remains no other way for you to be forgiven of your sins and reconciled to a holy and righteous God that we all have rebelled against and deserve His just wrath. This is the purpose. He came so that we might be counted righteous if we would turn from our sin and trust in the work of Christ, that Christ would take the penalty of our sin and we might be credited with the righteousness of God before Him. So we have this scene, Jesus displaying His glory to prominent Old Testament figures They're interacting with Jesus as his face shines, as his clothes are a radiant glow. What a moment. And someone decides to speak up. Poor Peter. He got it right in verse 20. At least as right as he could get it before the resurrection. He got it right in verse 20. He did did well there. But here, he doesn't even get to finish his thought before God shuts them down. Look there, now we're at verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Now this act of the disciples growing tired and falling asleep is is interesting. It's only Luke that records this detail. The disciples tend to hear, they start to develop a bit of a reputation that while we see Jesus praying at significant moments of his ministry, like the Transfiguration and the Garden of Gethsemane, we find the disciples sleeping. I don't know if you've ever fallen asleep during something important, but I'm guessing it wasn't this important. It wasn't Jesus revealing his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. I remember when movie theaters first put those leather seats in that could recline. I could not stay awake to save my life. I woke up one time and I told Liz, I fell asleep when they were on the mountain and I woke up there on the train. What did I miss? And Lizzie hates talking during the movie, so she goes, everything. (laughs) When the disciples wake up, they have apparently missed much of the conversation, but they do see the glory of Christ, right? That's important. They, They do see I don't know how much they caught of all the conversation that was happening about Christ's departure, though I think it's some, given what Matthew says, they had some follow-up questions. But they missed much of this moment. But when when they're fully awake, they see Moses and Elijah about to depart. And Peter is dismayed by this. He doesn't want Moses and Elijah to leave, so he acts. And we've said before that sometimes our greatest strength is our greatest weakness, and sometimes Peter acting comes like verse 20, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and and he's right, and he speaks up, and he's a spokesman for the disciples. And then other times he he acts, and it reveals his his weakness. He's, He's sometimes too quick to act, too quick to speak. So he speaks here. Peter seems to, to sort of, no, Moses and Elijah, I want, I want to prolong this moment. Jesus revealing his glory, Moses and Elijah here, don't leave, come back, let, let's prolong this moment. In fact, I, let, let's build three tents, one for Jesus, one for Elijah, one for Mo, Moses. And in one sense, we can, we can sympathize with Peter here, that he, he seems to want, I think if we, if we think about this um, 
as we kind of zoom out and think about the canon of Scripture, he seems to want to celebrate a Jewish festival called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. The feast would begin five days after the Day of Atonement. It was about the time of the fall harvest. And this was a time of joyous celebration where they would erect these booths to live in for a week. At least the men would live in those. And it was a time to celebrate God's provision of the harvest. It was a time looking back to God's provision in the wilderness. And it was a time to look forward to the the complete provision that the Lord would provide. You know, in terms of looking back, Thanksgiving is not the worst sort of illustration of that. We, we look back and we're thankful, but this was a specific feast that's given to Israel to, to appreciate the harvest he's given, look back to his provision in the wilderness, look forward to his ultimate provision that he, would, he has promised. So we might be kind to Peter and say, maybe he's picked up on something about the presence of Moses and Elijah. He wants to celebrate a feast that looked back to God's deliverance and looked forward to uh, the coming of the Messiah that was represented by Elijah. But Peter makes a couple errors. First, and I think... God the Father will answer this in a moment. The feast is unnecessary when Jesus has taken on flesh and is in the presence of the disciples. The source of provision is in your midst. You don't have to obey the feast. And this points to the flaw in Peter's logic. He fails to see the fullness of Christ. He recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah, but he doesn't quite seem to grasp that Jesus is God in the flesh. By the, by the suggestion that I build a, a tent for all three, Peter seems to be putting them all on a level playing field. Moses and Elijah and Jesus, you know, they're just sort of three great prophets, three great figureheads of Judaism. Well, God the Father then clues us in to where Um, Peter here is wrong. Luke lets us know that Peter didn't even really know what he was saying. He's wrong. And God the Father is about to correct him. We see, secondly, the person of Christ announced there in the last part of our passage. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. You see that Jesus, or Peter here, is interrupted before he even gets to finish, as he was saying these things. God the Father can stand it no longer. He must interrupt this conversation, and a cloud comes and encompasses them. Now, I think, that's, I think them is everybody that's there. The disciples are fearful at this point, remembering that in the Exodus, God would often reveal his presence through a cloud. In Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. 
and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So this cloud, it's often symbolic of God's very presence. And the disciples would have known that Moses could not even enter the tabernacle when the glory of the Lord was manifested there through this cloud. He would have been consumed. They are not consumed, but they do hear the voice of the Father speak, and He speaks concerning His Son, Jesus Christ. This is similar to the message that was given at the baptism of Christ. Remember in chapter 3, Jesus comes out of the water, the Spirit descends on Him like a dove, and a voice from heaven, God the Father, says, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Well, this is similar The pronouncement here seems to be a response to Peter's misunderstanding, to Peter's wrong idea. And his pronouncement is this, this is my son. We've talked a lot about what it means to be the son of God. It doesn't just refer to the close, intimate relationship that the son shares with the father and they both share with the spirit. It's more than just a relational idea. It points to the royal status of Christ, that he is the king. God promised in 1 Chronicles 17 that he would raise up one of the ancestors of David that would rule on the throne forever. And he says in there, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, and his throne shall be established forever. So in the Old Testament, sonship, is linked to kingly authority. And so for Christ to be the Son of God is that He has come to be the King. He is the true Son of God. He's he's greater than David, greater than Solomon, greater than all the kings of Israel. He's unique above and beyond them. He is the true Son of God, the true King of God's people. He is my Son, the Father says, my chosen one. In one sense, this is... God's amen to Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ of God. Though Peter needs to learn. God the Father is announcing that Jesus is not just another prophet. He's not just another king. He is the Lord made visible. He has the same divine essence as the Father. He is the one that has been prophesied from the beginning. Listen to him. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, that God had promised a prophet like Moses and warned Israel that when this prophet like Moses comes, it is to him that you shall listen. I will send you another prophet like Moses, and you shall listen to him. So God is undermining Peter's misconception that Jesus and Moses are on the same level. He's announcing that the one who is greater than Moses has come in Jesus. Jesus is superior to Moses, and therefore his exodus is superior to the one led by Moses. Whereas Moses led people out of physical bondage and slavery, Jesus would free his people from sin's bondage. You see, our greatest need as people, our greatest problem, isn't that we simply commit a few sins here and there, and that therefore we are guilty. It is that 
apart from Christ, we are absolutely enslaved by sin. We are in bondage to our sin. We are dominated by it. We give ourselves over freely to it. And Christ alone not only has the, the ability to free us from its penalty, but also from the enslaving power of sin. Our own efforts to reform ourselves outside of Christ are like a lowly Israelite pointing his finger in the face of Pharaoh and saying, I think I'll go free today. It's nothing. It's nothing. What we needed is one like Moses. What we needed is one that is greater than Moses. We needed the Lord Jesus Christ to lay down his life and to be resurrected from the grave and to ascend to the right hand of the Father so that we might be free from slaves' dominion and authority and enslaving power. Moses, then, and the Exodus were plots for God to call back and say, now the greater, the greater person is here. The one has come in Christ. The Moses, Elijah, the Exodus, these are like crumbs leading you along the way so that when the real deal comes, you can see for yourself the glory of Christ. And so Peter and James and John here are told to listen to Christ. Listen to him. They, they, they've just been told that the Son of Man must suffer and die and be rejected. Well, when Jesus says it's necessary for him to die, listen to him. When he says that his glory will be made manifest through his suffering, listen to him. When he shows you the way to return to God through himself, listen to him. And by God's grace, Peter eventually got it. Again, we've been saying it's not until after the resurrection that the Lord opened their eyes to see the fullness of everything that he'd been telling them. So Peter didn't get it on this mountain, but after the resurrection, the ascension of Christ, he would preach at Solomon's portico in Acts chapter 3. He would say this to fellow Israelites, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as you did also your rulers, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago, Here's verse 22. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me among your brothers. You shall listen to him and do whatever he tells you. Peter connected the dots after the resurrection of Christ that, that this is the greater Moses. This is the Moses that was predicted in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And now he's offered freedom from the penalty and the power of sin and calls his audience to repent and to turn back and to come to faith in Christ. And now the clouds depart. Moses and Elijah are gone. And there's only silence. Now the other Gospels tells us that Jesus actually commanded the silence of the disciples. 
until after the resurrection, then he sends them out to proclaim it from the mountaintops that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and he's offering forgiveness of sins to those who turn from sin and trust in Christ. But until then, they didn't get it. They were blinded from seeing the fullness of Jesus' divine nature, the fullness of the salvation that he's brought to come, what he meant, and he said it plainly, that I must die and I must rise again. And Luke was going to tell us later. They, they just didn't understand. They didn't understand that. So they come down the mountain, and the glory of Christ, in many ways, in an important way, is veiled again. So what do we do with this text? How does this change the way I think during the course of the week? We might say this, in a similar way that Moses pointed back to the Exodus and Elijah pointed forward to the return of Christ, we too might set our sights both backwards and forward. We can listen to Christ in the sense that we allow his testimony concerning himself to, to begin to permeate our thinking and to permeate our thoughts. We glimpse the divine glory of Christ as we read Scripture and we commit ourselves to it and we hear preaching and we believe what Christ has said concerning himself. We believe what God has revealed to us because God has revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. To know Christ is to see the glory of God. John Calvin said it this way, God is truly and really known in Christ. For He is not His obscure shadowy image, but His impress which resembles Him. As money, the impress of the dye with which it is stamped. He is the exact imprint of His nature. He is the revelation of the glory of God. And so we can know, we can glimpse something of the glory of God as we consider the person and work of Christ. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. As we behold the glory of Christ, we are transformed into the image of Christ. And Paul says, for this comes by the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. To allow us, as we consider the person and work of Jesus, a glimpse into the glory of Christ, so that we might be conformed into His image. But we also recognize that in some significant ways, the fullness of the glory of Christ at least his shining brilliance, his radiant majesty, his splendor are veiled to us until that day in which we see Christ face to face. And so we look forward in anticipation and in real true hope that we will be with Christ face to face and we will see more of what the apostles saw on that Mountain. We long for that day in which Christ reveals himself in power and glory at his coming when he gathers himself, his people to himself, and rules and reigns forever. And we are no longer then, as those who see Christ, we will be like Christ. We are no longer touched by sin. We're no longer touched by the consequences and the effects of sin. Instead, we shall be like him because we shall see him as 
He is. Let's pray together. Lord, give us eyes to see the glory of Christ until that day in which we see Christ face to face. We long for that. Lord, may our hope rest in that and not in this world, not in the pleasures that this world has to offer, not in the power that this world has to offer. Lord, may we boast only in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.